Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The story you're about to hear is a true birth story. It's the real deal. And it may not be appropriate for sensitive ears. On today's episode... I put a lot of blame on myself. You're broken. There's something wrong with your body. You're broken that you don't love pregnancies, that you don't love postpartum. And so it it took a lot of time for me to really process through that and change the narrative and to really believe that like, no, you're not broken. You gave birth to two kids. Two kids came out your vagina. Your body did the thing. It just looked different than you expected. And you kicked ass. You are incredibly strong and you survived. You did the thing all the way, but it took a long time for me to believe that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Williams. I'm so glad you're here. My guest today is therapist Alexis Edwards. She's a licensed clinical social worker. She's a certified doula, and she is passionate about helping birthing parents who have a history of trauma have happy and empowered birth experiences. Alexis is working to create safer spaces for birthing parents everywhere by helping survivors of sexual trauma become not only more aware of the special emotional and mental challenges that they may encounter by birthing a baby, but she's also educating those survivors on how to advocate for a safe environment to birth in. Not only that, what's cool is she is also working to train perinatal professionals themselves in understanding how they can better serve trauma survivor clients throughout the pregnancy, birth, and postpartum experience. So some really, really important, cool stuff. Alexis is also a mother to three children. And so since she gifted me all three of her birth stories, we had quite a lot to talk about. So today is actually part one of a two-part series I wanted to make sure to really create space for not only her birth stories, but also for the advice that she has for all of you listening. And that's why I decided to do this conversation in two episodes. You know, the truth is many, many people are survivors of sexual assault and trauma, but it's just another one of those things that we don't talk about for many reasons. And it's understandable. I mean, the recent Me Too movement really brought a lot of that up to the surface. And whether you yourself have had to endure traumas in your life or not, you can be sure that someone that you know, someone close to you has. It's just not something people really want to think about or deal with. And quite frankly, no one talks about it in regards to the way that past trauma affects pregnant and birthing people. And that is why I really admire what Alexis is working to do. She is boldly standing in an uncomfortable and vulnerable place because she wants to create space for survivors everywhere to feel understood and prepared and empowered in their own experience as they give birth. In today's episode, part one, you'll hear what started Alexis on her journey as a therapist and doula, as well as you'll hear her first two birth stories. And next week, she shares her final and most recent birth story, 
and we will dive deeper into how her own birth experiences informed her work and how you can set up yourself for the best possible outcome as you transform into a parent. Here is my conversation with Alexis Edwards. Thank you for doing this. You have a small baby, so I especially appreciate it. How old is your youngest? You said two and a half months ago you gave birth? He just passed three months. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So still little. How are you? Coping okay? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, we we can get into that more later, but um, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I have so much that I want to learn from you and hear about your story, but I'm wondering if you could just, just for reference for everyone listening and for myself, just tell me a little bit about yourself and what work you do and how you came to be in the work that you, that you do now. Sure. So I have three kiddos. My oldest is seven and then I have a six-year-old and a three-month-old. I went to graduate school for social work. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker And I primarily worked in the domestic violence, sexual assault field pre-children. So I worked with the National Hotline. I worked at a rape crisis center. I worked at a DV shelter. So I kind of accidentally niched myself in that part of the field initially. And then I started having my kids. My first two were really close together. And after I got pregnant with my second, I transitioned home for a few years. So I wasn't working and I was a stay-at-home mom. And that didn't really work very well for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I learned I learned pretty quickly that I needed to be working. I wanted to be working. So it was during that time home that I spent a lot of time thinking about my career and what I wanted to do long-term. I also did a lot of my own healings. Both of those births were traumatic, very difficult. And I, I'm a survivor of sexual trauma. So uh, a lot of stuff resurfaced for me in the postpartum period as well, as I was navigating all of that when they entered the picture. Hmm. I was home for, gosh, that was probably four years and was engaged in a lot of my own work personally in therapy just kind of processing all of that and getting myself to a place where I was okay. And that's when I decided I also wanted to work with new parents specifically. So I became trained as a doula and I opened a private practice here in Austin three years ago now. So um, I kind of combined both of those roles where I was providing doula support I I definitely like marketed myself that I have this knowledge of trauma and that I can support birthing folks that have experienced some type of trauma. So a lot of my doula clients that came to me were coming to me for that reason. And then I also sought additional training in perinatal mental health. And I had a small practice of therapy clients supporting uh, new parents in pregnancy, postpartum that were dealing with perinatal mood or anxiety disorders. It's such an important, I know you called it a niche, but it's, it's one of those things that until you have a child, sometimes you don't even realize that you haven't dealt with past trauma. I mean, at least a lot of the moms that I've talked to, and I'm speaking from myself personally, um, not Mm -hmm. a lot of people know this about me, but I'm also a survivor of sexual assault. So thank you for 
providing that service for people. Sometimes it's just nice to know that there's someone you can talk to that understands and they can trust you. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful mm-hmm. and really important stuff. I want people to know where they can go and find you. And of course, I'll put that in the show notes. But okay. what's your website called? Yeah, my practice is called Birth360. My website is birth360.net. And then I'm also on Instagram, birth360ATX. I'm in Austin, Texas. Great. So since you've given birth three times, right, we have kind of a lot to cover. So I was hoping that you could share with me sort of what specifically maybe what the surprising parts were for each pregnancy individually and how they differed from each other. And then we can cover the birth stories after, but just focusing on pregnancy right now, how did each pregnancy go for you? So my first is definitely fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> I This third time around, I was very sick the first trimester and I was very sick with one of my others, but I don't remember if that was my first or my second. Oh, wow. And I only had only one of those pregnancies did I have a better first trimester. Well, they were Um, pretty close in age, right? You said they're now six and seven. So yeah, that's pretty boom, boom. You were in it. (laughs) I was definitely in it. And a lot of, and even just the big gap now, like I remember things that I'm, I oftentimes confuse, like, was that my son or my daughter? Maybe I'm meshing it together. Understandable. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I will say that across the board, just because of my sexual trauma history that all pregnancies were difficult for me in a sense of like, I didn't have control of my body. Mm-hmm. So I didn't actually enjoy pregnancy. It was hard for me to connect and like be in it. I just felt every ache and pain and I wanted to have my body back. I wanted that autonomy again. And it didn't mean that I didn't love my baby and I wasn't excited about that process, but pregnancy is definitely very difficult for me just from the physical and emotional changes that you kind of move through. So it was tough in that way. Mm -hmm. You've lasered into this, you know, helping other people who have had traumatic sexual past maybe now, but at the time when you were first going through it, did you have any sort of awareness that maybe that was connected? No, I didn't. My son's birth was traumatic really because of my history. Okay. And I didn't make that connection until after the fact. Is your son your oldest? He's my oldest. Yeah. Okay. I definitely knew that connection with pregnancy with the second two, but for him, it was all new and I was completely unaware. And the way that I was feeling, I wasn't connecting it to my past. I honestly, I don't know that I was communicating very much with folks what was going on in my head. You know, people don't generally like to say I don't enjoy pregnancy because then you're judged for that. And, you know, all of the stuff that comes along with that. So I probably was silently kind of carrying that Mm -hmm. throughout that process. And I had never been pregnant before. So all of that combined, I was just kind of oblivious. Mm -hmm. There is sort of this thing in culture where it's like, oh, but you're so blessed if you're able to be pregnant. It's very valid to have that experience of like, this is not what I thought it was going to (laughs) be. You know, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Hashtag blessed. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So with your son, what was your birth plan? Where were you at as you're preparing for the first time to give birth? Yeah. So my story about birth was where I'm from. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And like growing up, 
there was one major hospital and like everyone either had a planned cesarean or a planned induction. Like that was just what I knew about birth. Wow. Yeah. So I, I didn't know much. And I have, when I got pregnant with him, I just kind of stayed under the care of my gynecologist who was also an OB-GYN and I didn't know what questions to ask. I just kind of, you know, trusted whatever she said. And anytime she would say, do you have questions? I'm like, no, like you tell me, I don't, I never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. But oddly enough, my husband, he was working for this healthcare company at the time and they watched the business of being born at Mm. his company. And he came home and was like, you have to watch this. Uh, And we watched it together. And that kind of opened the door for me to start exploring more and like having more curiosity about what exactly I was going through and what my options were. So I, you know, the more that I read, the more that I watched, the more that I listened, I realized I wanted something really different than what I was receiving. So Mm. at like 30 weeks, we transferred care to a different OB-GYN. So we had a planned hospital birth, but I I was hoping for an unmedicated birth. Mm. And so that was you know, how we entered that process. Okay. How did the labor go with the first and how was the, how was the birth? It was long. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It was a three day ordeal. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, I feel you. That was me too. That was uh, insane. I did not think it was going to take that long. What, what did your water break or how did you know you were in labor? Did you start contracting? I started with contractions. My water didn't break to start my labor. And they were definitely like textbooked in that they were like mild period type cramping. And then that just gradually increased with intensity and frequency over time. And I, when I say I was in late, like it was a three day ordeal, like from when contractions started, I, you know, it started out slow, but once it moved into an active phase, I was having contractions every three to four minutes. They were intense. I had to like pause, you know, as I was laboring to really focus. I was in that active stage for two of those days. (laughs) Oh, wow. And at what point did you go to the hospital? So we actually went back and forth a couple times. Oh, okay. um, Because my OB knew that I was hoping to have an unmedicated birth. Mm-hmm. She was real supportive of that. And basically like I kept, my problem was I was failure to progress. So mm-hmm. I guess I should lead with that. Um, yeah. Is that this was happening. I was having, you know, active intense contractions that should be doing something to my cervix, but I wasn't dilating at all. So the first time we went to the hospital, I was zero and it had been like a good 24 hours of laboring. And it was just like, are you serious? Like nothing. Yeah. So she allowed me to, well, I say allowed, I don't like to say that, but she was supportive of my desire to go back home and to continue laboring and try to get things moving with different methods. So my doula, we literally did like every trick in the book, like all kinds of different positions. I was taking herbs. I got a chiropractic adjustment. Like we did so many different things to try to get baby and things moving. And then the second time we went to the hospital, I was still only like a two. Ooh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
as a first timer, you just really sometimes you just have no reference. You go like, oh, I heard this took 12 hours for somebody. Like the fact that it can take three days, it's hard to cope mentally. Did you find that that was the hardest part maybe about that is coping mentally? Oh, yeah, it was a mind fuck. Yeah, it was. I mean, this is part of what I know now, like looking back on that experience, like I know for a fact that my trauma history was a part of why that was happening. Mm. I do know that, you know, the average first time parent, your labor and birth can be 12 to 24 hours. And I don't even think that that's being told to birthing people all the time. Mm -mm. So there's no expectation going into it and you haven't lived the experience. So of course you don't know. So that part alone messes with you. But then when you're working so hard and you're like, I took the classes, I read the books, I'm doing all these tricks, I've got the doula, like I'm doing mm-hmm. everything I'm supposed to do. And why isn't this working? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my body that it's doing something different than somebody else's? And of course, it's hard to not compare from the stories that you may have heard from friends or family about their experiences. Yeah, And I don't think that's talked about as much either of like, Every single birth, even all three of mine, you know, they're completely different. Like there's no, there's no prediction (laughs) of what that's going to be like. Yeah. That's impossible. So yeah. That's almost the hardest part about it is you just, like, I have no idea. I just have to let go right now because anything can happen. Yeah. No control. Yeah. No control. So I'm sorry, I cut you off when you were saying you had gone back and they checked you and you were only two centimeters. So then what happened after that? They sent you home again or did you Uh, stay? At that point I was begging for an epidural. So, you know, this was now we're on day three. I haven't slept. Those contractions were consistently intense. Like I was just in so much pain And it was funny, my husband and I, like, I had told him, if I ask for the epidural, I want you to like, go, okay, I'm going to go tell the nurse, and then like, go pretend like you're going, but don't actually go get her like, to stall stall and give me more time to try to work through things. But by that point, like, I looked at him, and I was like, I need you to tell them I want the epidural right now. And if you don't really do that, like, I will murder you. So (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Yeah, so I was serious. And that was actually what my body needed for that birth in particular is once I got the epidural, I slept for a good like five or six hours. And when I woke up, I was complete and it was time to push. So that was what my body needed to be able to relax and be able to open. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because, you know, a lot of people have a lot of shame around needing pain management. There's not really a right answer, right? It's what's best for you. And if that is what you needed to relax, then that's, um, that's a really good point of view. Yeah. Okay. So you took this nice long nap and then you woke up and then, and you were ready to push right then or. Uh, yeah, pretty much. That's pretty much how it went down. Like the nurse came in and was like, Oh, you're complete. It's time to push. (laughs) Um, and so they set everything up. Pushing was hard. I'm pretty sure now my, son was in a posterior position. Mm. He had a really massive cone head when he came out, which is usually a sign that they were in that type of position. But I I pushed for like an hour and a half. Like it was a long, which there are some people that push for three hours. So it wasn't quite that long, but it wasn't like, you know, again, expectation of like, you think you're just going to like push the baby out with a couple pushes and it's over with. But 
it was an hour and a half of like really working hard. I had to have oxygen because I was running out of breath. And we ended up doing tug of war where the nurse like pulls with a sheet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was exhausting. Like that was, you know, for some pushing can feel like really good. And it's like the end and you're almost there. But in that moment, it felt like seriously, like why, why is this still not over yet? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he finally emerged and that was relieving. Mm -hmm. You must've been so tired. What would, do you remember what that first moment of meeting your son was like? I definitely, it, it took me a minute to connect. I think I was in shock. This actually did like, it's, I've been waiting so long for this to happen and now he's here. So it took a little bit of time for me to like adjust to that. But once I did, we got some good snuggles in and, you know, I felt really proud that he was here. So, yeah. yeah. And as far as your body, how did, did you tear it all or? Yeah, I had a second degree. I think it was a second degree tear. So not too terrible, but still bad. Yeah. yeah. Still something. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it, like physical recovery wasn't, I mean, it, it certainly hurt at the time. Things are different now, but with my son, I had, uh, like hydrocodone, like that's what they gave you. Now mm. they only give you Advil, <laughs> uh. but I, I took the real drugs with my son postpartum. Now they only give you Advil. <laughs> I think it depends on the doctor. Cause I had to really fight for pain meds. Um, and I know a lot of really? my mom. Yeah. And, um, I got some, yeah, I think it was hydrocodone too. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I remember it was a struggle. They were only giving me like very low dose of ibuprofen at first. And I was like, who do I need to talk to in this hospital? <laughs> like I was so mad. Um, but yeah, no, it's like they're they're hesitant because there is a real problem. But, you know, at the mm-hmm. same time, it's kind of, that's another thing you have to figure out how to navigate, like advocating for the proper pain medication. You know, it's like we all have to like Whoa. figure out how to speak to doctors now. You know, it's crazy. Well, I mean, we all we also unfortunately live in a culture where uh, women and more specifically black women are our pain is ignored. Like we're not listened to, we're not believed. And so a lot of times that fight is happening because they're like, oh, you're just being dramatic. Like, right. It's not that Stopping bad. hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. That's maddening. <laughs> it's true. It's unfortunate that you have to become like, you know, no, nobody wants to feel like they're being a bitch, but it feels like you have yeah. to sort of just be willing to, okay, I'm going to be the bitch here till I can get what I need. And then I can actually like go take care of my baby properly. Like sometimes it just yeah. feels like ridiculous that that's what it's come down to. But yeah, no, I, I know that they're very, very hesitant about handing that out. It's just, it's a crazy time. It's a crazy time. So did you feel like though, that you were able to, the phys- we'll talk about the physical recovery of that first birth, that it was something that you were able to like manage okay? Yeah, the physical recovery was not as difficult as the emotional recovery for me. So we didn't have a ton of support. Like at, with our first, we lived in a suburb of Dallas. We had only just moved there but we didn't have any friends. We didn't have family there. Like we didn't have any of that support system. My only friends were my coworkers, none of whom had had children yet. I was the first of my coworkers to have a child. So they didn't know how to support me. And I lived 45 minutes away in this suburb of the city. So I was also like physically isolated. So that part was more of a struggle for me was 
no support. My mm-hmm. husband went back to work after like four days. So it was literally me alone with the baby. And I was oh. having, I didn't know, I didn't identify it as such at the time, but I was having really intense intrusive thoughts. Mm. I don't know if you know what those are. If you're familiar. I can speculate, but I'd rather hear you describe it. <laughs> um, well, yeah, they certainly are like they sound and that they're repetitive thoughts that are really intrusive and they prevent you from being able to do the things that you normally can do. So for example, I I had these very vivid, intense thoughts of like all the ways he was going to die. So, you know, if I, if I got in the car, I would have this thought of us getting into this horrific car accident. So like, I didn't want to drive places. Anytime I'd walk in the kitchen, I would like think about accidentally dropping a knife on him. Like they sound really ridiculous to say out loud, but when they're happening, they feel very real and they kind of keep you frozen from doing things that you normally should be able to do. And so I was navigating that alone, Mm. unsure if it was normal or not. You know, again, I'd never lived that experience before. I didn't know. So even as a mental health professional, I, I wasn't making those connections, you know? So, yeah, that's intense. That's intense. How do you feel like you got through it? Like when uh, what, did you ever get, find someone and get help? My OB was probably more in tuned than uh, I don't know if that's a word tuned in was more tuned mm-hmm. in <laughs> mm-hmm. than I feel like I've experienced later on. I think she was above average with her check ins. And she definitely knew something was up. And she did write me a script for Zoloft but I never took it. Okay. So I accepted it and I had the bottle and I may have, I don't even remember for sure, but I may have like told my best friend and like my husband that I was taking it, but I did not take it. I don't know why, but I just was very opposed to taking this pill at that time. And I honestly Hmm. just kind of suffered. I never sought therapy. I didn't take the pills my OB gave me. I wasn't talking very outwardly about what I was experiencing. So on the outside, I think people mostly thought I was okay. And I had to go back to work after 12 weeks. And so, oh my goodness, wow, you didn't get any breaks at all. So I just kind of moved into that routine, went back to work and it, it ended up resolving, but it probably wasn't until he was like nine months old that I felt like I emerged from a fog and was like, oh, here I am. And like realized that I was living something not healthy. Mm. <laughs> like I just didn't read, right. I wasn't like identifying that as such, you know, I was just kind of suffering. Uh, it's hard when you're in it, especially when you're so sleep deprived on top of everything, mm-hmm. it, it can feel like overwhelming. Let's take a little break real quick, shall we? Travel back with me to a moment in the history of human birth. A little segment I like to call, And You Thought You Had It Bad Now. (laughs) Imagine you are a 1950s housewife. You're longing to start a family and you've been trying to conceive for months and months and months and now you finally missed your period. Oh joy, could this mean a baby? You go to the doctor. They take a sample of your urine and say, expect a call with the results. Several days later, the phone rings. Your doctor says, I have the results of your pregnancy test, ma'am. Oh, doctor, you say, tell me quick. I can't bear it any longer. Well, congratulations. The rabbit died. 
Huh? The rabbit died? Uh, yeah. Well, technically, all of the rabbits died, whether you were pregnant or not, but more on that in a moment. The first modern tests that could accurately detect pregnancy were done by injecting a pregnant woman's urine into animals. Yep. It turns out that pee has pretty much always been a predictor of whether a woman was pregnant or not. Ancient Egyptian women urinated on barley or wheat seeds, and if the seeds quickly sprouted, then the woman was pregnant. Actually, this method has been proven to correctly identify pregnancy 70 to 85% of the time, which is not bad at all for an ancient culture without modern science. But back to this whole injecting animals with urine method of pregnancy confirmation thing. Starting in 1927, doctors began injecting mice with a potentially pregnant woman's urine, and then a few days later, they would dissect the mouse, and if there had been HCG in the lady's urine, which is a hormone that rapidly builds up in a woman's body when she becomes pregnant, then the mouse's ovaries would have grown and produced eggs, therefore confirming pregnancy. This test proved to be pretty accurate, and by the 1930s, doctors were routinely using rabbits for this purpose. A lot of women believed that the rabbit only died if the test was positive, but the truth is that all the rabbits died, as they had to be surgically opened in order to examine their ovaries. If this sounds barbaric, well, I mean, it is. It's kind of hard to imagine how many animals died so that women could find out if they were pregnant. The good news is that pregnancy tests have evolved, and doctors went from testing rabbits to testing frogs, which didn't need to be killed because frogs lay eggs and don't need to be dissected to assess their ovulation. Then in the 1960s, doctors began to perform pregnancy tests in the lab that didn't require a live animal. However, they still required mixing the woman's urine with sheep's blood. Crazy, but true. It wasn't until the 1970s that pregnancy tests could finally be performed without the use of any animal or animal product. And in 1988, what we now know as the modern pregnancy test finally hit the shelves of stores everywhere. And for the first time in, well, all of time, women had autonomy over their own pregnancy test experience. Isn't that crazy? For only 33 years, you and I have had the privilege and right to take a pregnancy test in the privacy of our own homes. Another great reason I don't need a time machine. I'm good here. Thanks. And the rabbits, they're good here too. And now back to the show. But then you got pregnant pretty quick. I mean, did you always know you wanted a, a few kids or did you sort of just decide you, oh, we want to have another one? Like, how did the second one come to be? The second one was planned. Uh, my husband is one of four, so he always mm. wanted a large family. And mm. I was like, I'll take it one at a time. Okay. I wasn't even sure if I wanted children, honestly. I We also come from very different backgrounds. Like he's got his leave it to beaver, perfect nuclear family. I come from a more broken family and there's like history of mental illness and substance abuse and like all these yucky things. Mm -hmm. And so I just was never really sure if I wanted to 
bring children into the world with all the baggage that I carried. So it was a, I was like, we'll see how one goes. Um, and our son was like an angel. So Mm. he, he actually like slept through the night, which is a huge game changer. Um, so I think like that coupled with, I started to feel better. We were talking about having a second and at the time I thought I wanted to be a stay at home mom. And so we were even talking about that transition and could I quit my job? And, you know, if I got pregnant and then I'd be home with both of them. And so we very much planned her. And I think my husband, he's very close with his siblings, especially his older brother. They're two years apart. So they're pretty close Uh in age. So, you know, he always wanted that for his kids too to like have that friend. So yeah, it was, it was planned. We did it on purpose. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. How was the second pregnancy? I think it was her that I wasn't sick in the first trimester, which Mm. was nice having a toddler and not having to experience that. But again, Mm -hmm. that's a little fuzzy. So who knows if I have that correct, but I was very excited that we got pregnant and we got pregnant pretty quickly. And I was just excited. I was excited about transitioning home. Like I ended up quitting my job and I was home with my son and we, you know, I got to go and do activities with him. And that was kind of a lovely time actually. Mm. And I would love to be a stay at home mom with just one child, but I think, um, (laughs) (laughs) I think I, I actually, I would love to be a stay at home mom with one child that sleeps and is like super laid back. So that's how I would describe my son. (laughs) My daughter is nothing like my son. She came out fierce, Mm. opinionated. She's a wonderful, amazing, awesome human that's going to do something really cool one day. But she's she's a lot to parent. Um, (laughs) And she does not enjoy sleeping. Like she's still at six years old, it's like hard to get her to sleep. It's hard to get her to stay asleep. She often comes in our bed. Like it was very different for my son. And Hmm. I think all of that is, is kind of what contributed to like the second time. So now I'm home with both of them. Right. And I'm not sleeping. And I was like, I need out of here. I can't, why did I want to do this? Right. That's crazy. And that's the thing about your kids. You don't, they do kind of come into the world how they are, right? They are who they are. Yes. And (laughs) you have to parent around that. Uh, So you're scaring me a little bit, but um, (laughs) if I ever have another kid, because my son is super chill too. He's like the the chillest, coolest dude. Like, um, we got really lucky with that. (laughs) It's hard to imagine not having that. But so the second birth, I mean, you had mentioned to me, I think in maybe your email that you know, you, you felt like the first two births were traumatic, but in what ways was the second, how did the second birth go? And was it, did you feel after going through the first birth experience that you were better prepared? And did you want to change anything about the second birth? What was your plan the second time around? Yeah, I wanted, I fought really hard to change things drastically the second time around. We planned a birth center birth. So I knew I didn't want to be in the hospital because I had part of the trauma that I experienced was the frequent cervical checks that happened in the hospital Uh, the first time around. Those were extremely triggering for me. And that uh, hospital in particular, I mean, they wanted to do them like every two hours. So when you were laboring? Yes. (laughs) Oh, wow. You see, that didn't happen with me because my water had broken prematurely. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want to go in there at all. But I could imagine that that would have been 
really awful for me as well. If I had had that experience, like I, I didn't even consider that they do that. Yeah, I would say that that's not as common to do it as frequently now, like in most hospitals, mm. they definitely space them out more. And then if you're advocating for yourself, you can certainly decline them. I didn't know that the first time around. But I, I knew that at least for the second time around, I was like, I have to find a way to limit these cervical checks like that was just horrific. And my my cervix is also also posterior, like every I, I guess it's permanently posterior. I actually don't know how that works. But each time I've been told that my cervix is posterior, which means that it's harder to reach. So uh. it was like incredibly painful. Like I remember the first time with my son that they couldn't find my cervix. And they they told me they were like, we're going to go get the nurse with the long fingers. Um, yeah. Oh, my God, that's so insensitive. Yeah, it was. I can't, be- I can't believe some of the things that come out of the mouths of people that's job is to care for women. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, was, it was pretty terrible. But so I planned a birth center with my daughter. And I hired a doula again. And I had very open conversations with um, the midwives at the birth center and with my doula about you know, I have this sexual trauma history. I know now that I think that is why I was failure to progress. Like, I think my body was just like, nope, we're, Mm -hmm. we don't feel safe. Like we're not going to open, we're going to stay closed. So I was like, I need something, you know, I need a safer environment and I need support that are going to be more understanding of that and limit those cervical checks and, and really give me more space to, to be on my own so that I can get into the mindset of, I'm okay, I'm in a safe place and not have it bring me back to that sexual assault. Like that's essentially what was happening is I was being reminded of that time in my life. So unfortunately, as hard as we plan to make those things be different, we kind of had a little bit of bad luck and things didn't really play out the way that I wanted. So my water did break to start my labor with my daughter And it was very much like in the movies, a big gush. Mm. And then pretty soon after that, contraction started. And that part was definitely similar of kind of that slow build of like mild contractions into some more active, intense contractions. And then we headed into the birth center and we happened to have a brand new midwife. So this birth center had like a, you know, they had like six midwives on staff and you got whoever was on call. Mm. And we had a newer midwife that we didn't know very well. She didn't really know. We hadn't had opportunity to have more of those full-on conversations with her about my history and about my needs. And the very first thing she wanted to do when we got there was check me. Like it was like, that was kind of what like started our care with her was like, like, okay, I need to check Mm. you, which that had been something we talked about with the other midwives. Like we don't need to jump and do a check right away. Like we're just going to let you labor and like look at other signs for how you're progressing and only do a check when it's absolutely necessary. Oh, so right off the bat, you didn't feel safe. Sounds like. Yeah. So that was really unfortunate. And when she checked me, I was only like one or two centimeters. So Mm. right away I was like, great, here we are again. My body's still not doing the thing. And she's inside me again right away, which is what I didn't want her to do. And so she also pretty immediately was 
pushing, like us doing things to get things moving. She was very concerned about the fact that my water broke and like put me on a very firm time clock. We can't go past 24 hours and you've already been doing this for a few hours. So like we have to get a baby going quickly. And and I think then again, like all that stuff from my past just kind of tumbled back in everything from my first birth kind of tumbled back in. And just from a mental perspective, like my brain wasn't there to be able to birth the way that I wanted to. Um, and so I do think that physically it was that again, I was kind of in that my, my nervous system took over. I was in protective mode and my body was staying closed because I didn't feel safe. Mm. And so we labored for a little while there and she ended up checking me like two more times. And I think I only got to like a three as we approached that 24 hour mark and she wanted us to transfer. And I, I'm pretty sure I had a panic attack in that moment, like that final check where she was like, okay, you're only three centimeters. We need to go to the hospital. Like I like lost it. I was, they ended up giving me nitrous oxide. Um, Mm -hmm. not like people, you know, you can use that for pain management, but I used it to like ground my, like it was for me to like come back to my body. Cause I was just so outside of myself when that all happened. And that allowed me to at least have like a coherent conversation about, okay, we need to go to the hospital. This is what's happening, even though it wasn't what I wanted. Yeah. So that's what we did. We went to the hospital. And that was the other thing that was different is this practice, this birth center had told us at the beginning that they had a relationship with this one hospital. And that if a transfer were necessary, we would go there, the midwife goes with you. And as long as it weren't like an emergency where you needed a cesarean that the midwife could potentially still deliver your baby at the hospital. But this, since this midwife was new, she had never been to that hospital and she was pushing us to go to a different hospital. Oh no. So we go, that's what, and like when you're in labor, like you can't have coherent conversations, you know? So like, yeah, like internally I was like, why is this happening? Like, this isn't what we fucking talked about what is happening. But like, I couldn't verbalize that. And then my husband is just like deer in headlights. Like he doesn't know how to really communicate that. So we went to this other strange hospital and they treated us like we were crazy people. Basically we were like the crazy transfer people that were irresponsible and like, didn't plan to have a baby in a hospital to begin with. Oh my God. Yeah. So you know, it's just like, it was layer upon layer with my daughter's birth of like one thing after the next, where it it essentially was like impossible for my body to do much of anything really. Cause I was just like surviving all of these hits. Yeah. You were like, I thought I prepared for this. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like that's the most frustrating thing I'm hearing is like, what we we went over this already. (laughs) What's going on? Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, anyways, then the next hit was the doctor on call. She was new to Austin and she had Um, only like been there a couple weeks and she like really thought we were cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And I don't know why, but when I, when she finally came in the room and I got to meet her, cause I've been asking the whole time, like, I need to meet the doctor on call. Like it can't be a male. Like I was very concerned if it were a male, how I would feel just with my past. Yeah. And thankfully it was a woman, but she was awful. When she came in, I don't know why, but the first thing that like came to my mind was like, we want to delay the cord clamping. Like I, that was the thing I needed Mm. to control in that moment. I don't know. It's really, really difficult to be like, 
don't touch my vagina. You know what I mean? Like to say, maybe to say the thing that you want to say, but you want to say something. And I, I, I understand why you just go to like, uh, do this other thing on my birth plan. That's maybe not as big of a big deal, but I, I don't know how to tell you that I don't feel safe right now. You know, like I understand that. No, that was definitely what was going on. But what happened in that moment is she like very adamantly was like, no, I don't do that. Like that was it. It was like, no, I don't do that period. And and I was just like, why? Like, is it going to hurt my baby? Like, what do you mean? Like, and she wouldn't give us information. And we essentially were like arguing. (laughs) So I'm like arguing with this woman. And this was, uh, I guess I had skipped a big chunk, but once we got to the hospital, I got the epidural, they gave me Pitocin, Mm -hmm. but things did happen a little more quickly than with my son. Like I never got to take a nap pretty much like my doula went to take a nap. My husband took a nap and like everyone kind of left and they were going to leave me to rest. But I started to feel pressure like pretty quickly after everyone Mm. left. And the nurse didn't believe me. Like I paged her in and I was like, I think something's happening. And she was like, no, it's probably the catheter. You know, it's going to be a while. (laughs) And I was like, no, like I, that's not what I'm feeling. Like something is happening. And when she finally looked down there, like I was complete. So Oh, why don't they believe women? Honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but anyways, this doctor, like we were arguing, I was complete, like it's time to push my baby. And I'm arguing with her about cord clamping. Like, why is this happening? What is going on? And she ended up like leaving. Like she told the nurse, she was like, you know what? I'm out. You can page doctor, whoever. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but in that moment I was like, get the fuck back in here. Like I said something like some obscenity, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, I'm about to have a baby. Why are you leaving me? Like what? (laughs) Mm. So yeah, it was a very strange experience. And the pieces that were traumatic that second time around were more about how we were treated, you know, were more about how I was completely ignored, not listened to my, my history was like, nowhere in the equation. And so it was just poor treatment throughout the whole thing that just was terrible. That's overwhelming. Oh my gosh. So the actual birth did that, that doctor was gone who delivered your baby? No, she came back in because nobody else was available. There was no one else to page. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I have, I have photos of that birth and this doc, like I hate looking at them because this doctor is there and she's like smiling in the pictures and it's so fake. (sighs) I don't, I'm really sorry. That sounds like the odds were just stacked up on that one and it's not fair. The actual birth, though, how quickly did she come with pushing? She came. How, yeah, it how was, was like that? less than 30 minutes. Oh, good. You know? Okay. Yeah, she came a lot faster. Postpartum at the hospital was also a hot mess. We mm-hmm. didn't get good postpartum care. And, and I actually had a friend who was a NICU nurse at that hospital, and she was working mm-hmm. when I delivered her. So she, like, came down to, like, say hello. And we told her this whole story, and we told her about, like, just the the poor care, like the way we were being treated moved into postpartum as well. Like it didn't really stop. And we told her all about it. And she like reported it to the charge nurse or whoever. And after that, of course, they like were on their P's and Q's. But initially, it just, you know, we were just like kind of labeled as like this crazy family. And so that that sucked as well. Mm -hmm. And then my postpartum with her, I I definitely like did things differently. You know, I had a therapist this time around and like I 
pre-planned that stuff, knowing what I had experienced the first time. Mm -hmm. Okay, good, good, good. So you had one already set up before you gave birth. Okay. And I just, you know, we just had more, we had more family support, we had more friends support, and we purposely kind of planned that as well. So all of that was better. Mm -hmm. And it certainly impacted and improved my mood for that. But I still experienced a traumatic birth. I still like had all this lingering stuff with my trauma history and she wasn't sleeping. So that was the other things, you know, and she also refused the bottle. Like she only wanted the breast and it was like every two hours for her first year of life is pretty much what that looked like was she would only take the breast every two hours. Mm. It was pretty maddening. That's a lot on you. So that was hard. And that's why it took five years to have a third. (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, I'm amazed that you got to that place at all. (laughs) After those after those two births, did you tear again the second one? Or was I did? You did? Okay. Same second degree? Same tear, like the same spot tore. Okay. And similar recovery with that? Or did you feel like it's easier the second time? Some people say it's easier the second time. I don't know. You know, honestly, I, it was physically, I think it was harder because I had a toddler. Like I, you know, he was like wanting to be held and like, didn't understand why I couldn't do things. And that part was hard. Did you feel like you had help more help than you did the first time, like with family members or did your husband go right back to work again? Or how was that? He took a week instead of four days. (laughs) He still didn't take off as much time as I would have liked, but we did have more, like his mom came for a little bit and we had our neighbors at the time were like really great. And she came and helped out a lot. Also, my doula came like she came a little bit postpartum as well. So we did have a little bit more mm-hmm. support. And then I also we ended up putting my son in like a Mother's Day out type school. Okay. So I had that okay, break cool. as well. So that was definitely different Good. Um, and uh, needed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, it's me, Christy. I just want to let you know, producing, editing and hosting this podcast has truly brought me so much joy over the past year. And you know what else brings me a lot of joy? Your ratings and reviews. Every time I get one, it's like Christmas morning times 10 million. So thank you so much for taking the time to send me some love in that way. It's really the best way to send support to me if you are someone who enjoys all this free content I'm making for you. And if you want even more free content and resources, make sure to visit birthshow.com where you'll see tons of recommended products and books and videos and tips and tricks that might help you on your own journey as you prepare to give birth and enter parenthood. Birthshow.com. The link is right in the show notes. Easy to find birthshow.com. And now back to the show. So that's good. You felt like you were more set up with the mental health initially, but it took, so it took five years. Can you tell me a little bit about why it took five years? I mean, my daughter's birth like cracked me wide open. Every single thing just kind of spilled out and Mm. I felt so inadequate with her. Mm. And I also just felt, I felt like uh, claustrophobic. What's the word? I felt like I was being held hostage. (laughs) I was the only one that she would take milk from. Mm. And I was the one that had to get up every two hours. It was hard. I had lots of dark thoughts in those days and wasn't sure if I was going to make it to the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And so, you know, even though I had more support and that was helpful, 
it just was a totally different experience. And I think I may have had this expectation of like, okay, I've lived this before. I know, you know, I know what I'm doing. It's, it's going to be easier. And it it was not at all. Like the things that worked for my son did not work for her. Like she didn't want to be swallowed. She didn't want the pacifier. She didn't even like to like sit and be held. You had to walk around with her and while you held her, like it, she was high maintenance in every way possible. And so it, it was just, being needed so intensely, it just was a shock to my system. And I like, I wanted to escape. Like I, I often like fantasized of like, it would be so nice if I could just get sick and need to be hospitalized for two weeks so I can just like sleep and have nobody touch me. (laughs) Wow. And again, I think I, you know, I didn't necessarily verbalize all of, even though I had a therapist and I had more support, I wasn't necessarily verbalizing all the dark scary thoughts that I was having because I didn't want to be judged, Mm. but they were there. And I think I felt really misunderstood too. Like I, I felt like the majority, the main message I was receiving was like, you know, you planned this, you wanted this, you wanted them close together. I I definitely got a lot of like pushback about her not sleeping because we also tried everything under the sun to get her to sleep. Like we hired a sleep consultant. We did cry it out. We did the not cry it out method. We did a lovey. Like we did all these different things to try to encourage sleep. And it just like she's just doesn't need a lot of sleep. Like that's how she came out. And I I got a lot of pushback (laughs) from people of like you're not doing enough and you're complaining And there's more that you could be doing to change the situation for you. So I just, I felt very alone and misunderstood. Oof. Yeah. No kidding. So that's why it took that long. Like it just, one, I had to even like get to a point where we were sleeping overnight, which didn't happen until a year in. And then by the time that happened, I think I started to just kind of unpack all that other stuff, you know, like I was unpacking my son's birth. I was unpacking her birth. I was unpacking like, why is my body broken and never want to open? Like why, no matter what I do, can I not let my body feel safe and do this thing that it's supposed to do? And so I, Hmm. I put a lot of blame on myself. You're broken. There's something wrong with your body. You're broken that you don't love pregnancy this much that you don't love, you know, postpartum, like all these other people do. And so it it took a lot of time for me to really process through that and change the narrative Mm. and to really believe that like, no, you're not broken. You gave birth to two kids. Two kids came out your vagina. Your body did (laughs) the thing. Like it did the thing. It just looked different than you expected. And you kicked ass. You are incredibly strong and you survived three days the first time around, two days the second time around, like you did the thing all the way, but it took a long time for me to believe that. Yeah. And so, yeah, it took five years for that process to happen before I was like, yeah, I can do this again. Like I, I have faith in my body. I have faith in my parenting. I, I know that I can do this and I can do it well. And there, there's not something wrong with me. Yes, yes. And how powerful that you're being brave enough to speak about that deep truth right now, because the reason that we have this assumption in society that everybody's meant to do this and feel empowered by pregnancy and birth is just really because that's what people like to talk about. They don't like to talk about the other. It's so much more common than we realize. And I know that for a fact, because when I started this podcast, 
and I started talking to people. Then I started hearing the truth. And I was like, thank <laughs> God I'm not the only one. I mean, yeah. really, it's just hard to feel like you're mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not. Yeah. We're not alone. This is the end of part one. Subscribe now so you don't miss part two next week when Alexis will share her final birth story as well as everything she learned from her children's birth, how that has informed her own work, and how you can be better equipped to advocate for your own needs and feel safer and happier in your own birth story. So check out the show notes, follow her on Instagram, visit Alexis's website, birth360.com, especially if you're a birthing professional listening. You know, I know some of you do, whether you're a doula or a midwife or a doctor, whatever, it's a great idea to check out the work that Alexis is doing so you can know how to better serve your clients. And for all you pregnant people out there, whether you've had trauma in your past or not, I think it's a great idea to mention Alexis's work to your own doulas and midwives and doctors so that they can become more aware and the more we stick together and spread the word on these things, then the more safe environments for birthing people will be created everywhere. I really believe that. My wish for you is that you feel safe, that you feel empowered, and that you feel like you are equipped with the knowledge that will help you have the best birth experience possible. And now here's a little preview from part two of my conversation with Alexis that will be coming to you next week. Birth and pregnancy are such whole body, intense, overwhelming experiences that something might wake up that you don't expect. And if it does, it's so important to loop in the right supports for that, where you can talk about that and talk about it fully and authentically and totally vulnerable so that you can get what you need in order to have the birth that you're hoping for. That's next week. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to being with you again next time. I'm Christy Williams, and this is Birth. This is a Sync Studios production.